title of the sermon today is Genuine Christian Prosperity. It's based on Psalm 1, 1 through 3, which I'll get into shortly. And I just wanted to preface it with a couple thoughts that I think help us put this topic of prosperity in the proper context. I'm going to read a bit of, of what the Lord just laid on my heart this morning as I was doing the final notes of this. And the topic of prosperity, because of its being abused and manipulated by so much of the modern church, seems to be a topic that is sadly neglected from a genuine biblical perspective. Seems like a lot because uh, the prosperity gospel is such an obvious corruption that the word prosperity can actually have a negative connotation in much of the modern Christian church, but it shouldn't be that way. There is a genuine biblical prosperity that we are to have as believers. So just because something biblical has been hijacked doesn't mean we should abandon it. Rather, it seems important to address it and provide biblical clarity in areas where, where worldly error has clouded the water. And this was the case uh, when we started this, this church and ministry seven or eight years ago. People came to me and said, well, why would you call it the way? You know, when people hear the way, they think of the way international, which is a cult that has done horrific damage. But I said, because we're taking the name back to what it was originally meant to be. If you read the book of Acts, the Christian church was called the way before it was called Christianity. It was the original identification of the church. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me in John 14, 6. So in that same spirit, because something has been corrupted doesn't mean we should abandon it. We should try to correct it and bring it back to what it means in a biblical sense. When Jesus referred to himself as the truth in John 14, 6, I believe that that applies on so many levels that we see throughout Christianity. And in the context of today's message, I believe that if we are truly abiding in Christ, in his word, in his truth, in whatever we do, will be based in that truth and will glorify him. If we prosper, our prosperity will be true and genuine because it will be grounded in truth and will truly be a joyful blessing without the tainting of the world and the tainting of human nature. One thing I love about when we study the word and we really spend time in the, in the study of the gospel and meditating on God's word is that we see reflections of biblical truths in the world around us. Now notice I use the word reflections. Reflections are not revelations. See, if we say that God is revealing something to us from the world, that may be the case, but how do we know that's true? We hold it up to the light of Scripture. What we normally see in the world around us are reflections of what is revealed to us through God's Word in Scripture. His Word is reflected in so many ways in the world around us. But in this topic today that we're going to get into about prosperity, what it really comes down to is something being genuine and something being false. And one of the ways that I saw this exhibited was in this, this movie that Laurie and Wyatt and I went and saw a few weeks ago uh, called Ford versus Ferrari. So many of the movies nowadays aren't worth seeing, but this one I really enjoyed this film. Part of it because I'm a racing fan. Um, I love cars, but... But more beyond that, it was the, the way that they developed the story and the relationship between the main characters. But in one of the opening scenes of this movie, Christian Bale's character, uh, it was based on, a, the story is based on Carol Shelby 
and a racer named Ken Miles. These were real guys. It was a historical story that was being conveyed in this film. But in this opening scene, Christian Bale's character, Ken Miles, uh, he owns a repair shop in Los Angeles back in the 60s. He tells the owner of a sports car that he's preparing that the reason the car seems to be running poorly is that the owner doesn't understand the car or know how to drive it. See, Ken Miles is one of these guys that he doesn't cut any corners. He just tells people the way it is. And this guy's complaining that his car backfires. It doesn't run right. Well, the reason is it's a performance car that needs to be driven in a performance manner, especially back then in the 60s. Charles probably knows this. He's worked on cars forever. Um, yeah, you had to drive a car at a, at a good level of performance to keep it performing. So he suggests to the guy that maybe it would be better off if he switched to a station wagon, you know. And this is this guy that's that's very proud, that's very caught up in materialism. He says, you know, you know, this car's just you don't understand it, you don't know how to drive it, you don't have a feel for it. Maybe you'd be better off in a country squire. I think that's what he refers him to, which was a big station wagon back then. So the guy gets angry, he jumps in the car, he drops the clutch too quickly, goes off a curb, and then he accelerates poorly down the street. He can hardly hold on to the car because of the horsepower. He's, he's in something way over his head. So the point of, the, of that is that the owner of the sports car, he was coveting an image that the car helped betray. He was seeking something that the car could not give him. Ken Miles loved the car because it could give him what he sought from it, speed, performance, handling. He had no interest in cars for image or status. Ken Miles was a racer and so he honored a race car by driving it to the, for the right reasons and in the way that it was designed to be driven. <laughs> Ken Miles truly prospered behind the wheel of a race car. The guy, uh, the guy who bought the sports car from envy and covetousness suffered because he was in something he didn't understand. Something from the car that the car was not designed to give him is what he wanted. What he was seeking was unobtainable to him from a car or anything else. And this is the trap that so many spend their lives in. So what you see, if you see that movie, you see a guy, Ken Miles, who's a mechanic who loves cars and he drives them for passion, for what he can do in them. He doesn't care about the image that it might create, you see? And the guy that he confronts is a guy that buys the car for the wrong reasons. The same principle applies to prosperity. Everybody wants to prosper, but not everyone understands that true prosperity is not measured with dollar signs and decimal points or the facade of an image that we try to create. True prosperity stands in nonconformity to the fleeting, shallow, mindless materialism of this world. True prosperity is not worldly. Revelation 3.17, the Lord addresses this directly. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Christ is directly confronting those that think they've got everything figured out in this world. Now, the title of last week's message was Peace with God from Romans 5, 1 through 11. And if we truly have peace with God, which only comes through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then we will come to understand and know what true prosperity is. 
if we truly trust and follow Christ. Let's look at Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Psalm 1, 1 through 3 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Now bear in mind that we're looking at Psalm 1. This is the first of 150 Psalms. So it occupies a very important place in Scripture. Psalm 1 conveys to us the blessings that we have, not only from the Psalms, but from all of God's law and word, as we are blessed to have it revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. There's a reason this psalm is where it is in the Bible. Let's look at verse 1. <clears throat> Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now what you have to understand from the original Hebrew, blessed is a much stronger word than happy. Quite often in, uh, I would say, erroneous translations of Scripture or where uh, they've taken Scripture out of context, they'll try to replace the word blessed with the word happy. So blessed means much more than happy. What it really means in a scriptural sense is to enjoy the favor and grace of God. That's what it is to be truly blessed. And here what we see in Psalm 1, 1 is uh, that the blessed person is described by what they avoid. This is where David opens here. And also notice that what is avoided is presented in a downward progression. Walks, stands, and then sits. So picture that. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So it's a downward progression. Now contrast that with those in Christ who may sit in contemplation and meditation of his word, stand in the truth and righteousness of Christ, and walk the narrow path of salvation by grace, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Upward progression. So what we have there is one of the examples of Christianity being in direct contradiction to the world. And what it's talking about here is departing from evil. And departing from evil is where wisdom begins. The world is full of evil, wickedness, sinners, scoffers. They cast off the fear of God. How? What we read about in Revelation 3.17, thinking they're rich. They have everything they need. What could happen to me with a six-figure bank account and everything I've got surrounding me? I'm safe. Christ says, no, you're naked if you're outside of him. See? You're exposed. They cast off the fear of God. Sinners in rebellion against God and then hardened to the point of scorn. This is what we saw all through the book of John. Scorn. Those that thought they were secure in the world, when Christ came in with the gospel that stands in contradiction to the world, the world scorns it. 
You see? The righteous do not walk in the counsel of the wicked. They do not follow their principles, take their advice, or compromise to their ways. The righteous do not stand in the way of sinners. Do not do as sinners do, and the way of sinners is contrary to the way of Christ. The righteous do not sit in the seat of scoffers, do not associate and conspire with those who defy the ways of Christ and seek to advance the ways of Satan. The godly cleaves to, feeds on, abides in the word of God, submitting to it for guidance and strength. And again, we see another reason here why our mission verse for this church and our ministry is Romans 12, 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You cannot have those things if you're conformed to the world. We have to strive to be conformed to the image of Christ. So Psalm 1.1 was, Blessed is the man who not, walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. And then in verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The reason those who are the Lord's do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, is because we delight in the Lord and his law. And this is one of those instances where we see Lord in all capital letters referring to what? Jehovah. See? I, the great I am. The highest name. But notice it says his delight is in what? The law of the Lord. So in the Hebrew, you could say that David's referring to the Torah. And that can refer to a specific command, but here it means instruction more broadly. In a broader sense, the whole of God's word in Scripture. We delight in God's word, in his law, and in his instruction because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is why this is a, a good follow-up to last week's message, Romans 5.5 5 from last week. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So we don't just read God's law because it's duty, we feel we should do it. It should be a delight, you see? That's the fascinating thing about the Christian faith and understanding the gospel. What, is the, what does the gospel do when you hear that law the first time before you're in Christ? It convicts you, it's painful. You don't wanna hear that you're a sinner in need of salvation, that you have no way to be reconciled to God. The law convicts. That's on that side of the cross. But when we come to Christ, we understand that if we stand in his righteousness because we trust in him and have faith in him, then like I've said before, then the law appears glorious. Why? Because it reflects the perfection that is in Christ. You see? So we see it in a whole different light, a whole different context, which is the context of standing in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Remember in the earlier chapters in Romans, Paul writes about the perfection of God's law, God's perfect justice and righteousness. Paul conveys without pulling any punches that we have all broken God's law and we are condemned under it. 
Romans 3.20 says, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is the point Paul tries to make through so much of the book of Romans. Through the law, my sin became clear to me. The law exposes the sin that is who we are. But now, because of the righteousness imputed to us in Christ, we delight in the law of the Lord, and on his law we meditate day and night. Because of the gift we've been given, because now we've been raised from the dead into life in Jesus Christ, we delight in the law. Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's the understanding of that gospel truth that enables us to delight in God's law. Otherwise, his law is horrifying. And if we look at verse 3, so if we reiterate again, this is one of the, the Psalms or something that's good to always take verse by verse. If we look at one, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Now the contrast, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. <laughs> it's the blessing from that. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. In all that he does, he prospers. So what David's giving us here are metaphorical images of the blessed in Christ. He is like a tree. The tree is the symbol of a life of blessing. Proverbs 3.18 says, She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. She is referring to wisdom. The Proverbs refers to wisdom as she. So wisdom is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. And then if you look at Proverbs 9.10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. You can't understand that without having your eyes and your ears and your heart opened by the Holy Spirit and being truly blessed. He is like a tree, what? Planted. Consider the endurance of the oak and the redwoods that stand for centuries amidst the harshest weather. You know, it's fascinating if you go to the coast of Northern California and you see these trees that are, you know, massive, and they've been there for hundreds of years, sometimes thousands. And you think of all the snowstorms, all the windstorms, all the lightning strikes, all the abuse that they've taken, and they just keep growing. They just stand there. That's the metaphor that's being presented here. He's like a tree planted by what? Streams of water. The tree endures and perseveres because of the stream that nourishes and sustains it. Those in Christ are nourished and sustained by his body, his word, which is the stream of living water that he talks about in John. 
That's what sustains us. That's what gives us strength. That's what enables us to persevere and endure our time here in the midst of evil. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields what? It's fruit. The righteous live lives of true purpose, true purpose and prosperity, bearing fruit which never withers or rots, but is stored up as eternal treasure. So picture that again. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit. The righteous live lives of true purpose and true prosperity, bearing fruit which never withers or rots, but is stored up as eternal treasure. That's the one who's doing things for the right reason, building treasure in the right place that's not fleeting, that will not go away. You see? He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit when? In its season. This is so important. This is one of the lessons that I tell so many people that are that are new to the Christian faith. Wait on the Lord. See? Wait on the Lord. When you have somebody that's been trapped in a life of sin and their life has been of suffering and darkness and they come to Christ, what's the first thing they want to do? Like become like a ministry superstar. Change the world. You know, what happens? They do that and then a few years later they're a complete bastard. Gotta wait on the Lord. See what his planting is going to bring forth in your life. So in its season means that the genuinely prosperous live, uh, the, the genuinely prosperous life is a life of seasons, times of being watered and times of watering, times of sowing and times of harvest, times of being fed, times of feeding. It's interesting, the longer you're in Christ, you look back over your life and you see those times. Times where we may have been through a death in the family or something that's, that we've had to struggle through, a great trial. So what do we need? We need to be fed. We need to be nurtured. And through that trial, what does it do? It builds our character. We're stronger. So what does that enable us to do? Feed others. You see? So there's seasons through our lives in Christ. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. Genuine prosperity is eternally secure, free from the sting of death. Free from the sting of death. You see, if you're not in Christ, when that day of death comes, that's it. You've created all you're going to create. You've done all you can do. That treasure now is gone. But if you're truly striving to serve the Lord and to build treasure in heaven, your leaves never wither. You see, there's really no winter time or fall. You're in a perpetual springtime. We may go through times that seem like winter and fall, but if we're in Christ, we're still being nurtured and our leaves are not withering. And through all this, it says, in all that he does, he prospers. Now, God's word is perfect. It's inerrant. Do all Christians seem to prosper? No, because we measure things from a worldly context. You see? How could Paul read that psalm as he's writing the book of Ephesians, you know, and he's got sores on his ankles from the chains that are rubbing on his ankles? You see? 
and he's sitting in a prison. He had the Psalms. How did Paul he say, wait, what's David talking about? In all that he does, he prospers. Paul prospered beyond what most Christians nowadays can even imagine. Because as he conveyed the gospel through the letters that he wrote, what did they do? They grew. Everywhere those letters went, new trees sprung up. You see? Because why? His prosperity was true prosperity. It wasn't worldly prosperity. Paul was very prosperous. He had a fruitful and a flourishing prosperity. Genuine prosperity which the world can't comprehend. Divine prosperity by God's grace and blessing full of joy and peace. So the reason why this is important is because as Christians, we may be given worldly prosperity. Solomon, he prayed for wisdom and understanding. The Lord blessed him with that, and he also blessed him with worldly prosperity. But at the end of his life, when he was writing Ecclesiastes, he basically said, all this worldly stuff, it's a waste of time. What it all comes down to is fear the Lord, serve him, love him. And then that gives all the worldly stuff what? Meaning. You see? Because then you're driving the race car for the right reasons. You see where that analogy fits in here? That's when prosperity really means something. Because you can look at what the Lord's blessed you with. You can look at your family. You can look at the fact that you have transportation. You can look at the fact that you have food on the table. Say, praise the Lord for this prosperity. Wow. Amazing. Because then you're looking at what you have and realizing that this isn't of me. This is from the Lord. As long as I'm striving to be conformed to his image, I will prosper in everything that I do, but it'll be a prosperity that's according to God's will, brings him glory, and that serves the purpose of the gospel. You see? That's true prosperity. Those are the Christians that may be sitting in your midst that have seven-figure bank accounts, but no one knows it. You see? Because they don't care if anybody knows it. But what does the world do? They have a four-figure bank account. Try to make it look like seven. <laughs> see what I mean? Because it's all about image. It's the opposite of the Christian faith. See? I'll close with Isaiah 61.3. To grant those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. See, and that's the key to this whole thing. Are we prospering for our glory or God's glory? Are we prospering according to our will or God's will? Are we striving for prosperity in God's cause or our cause? See, these are the questions we've got to ask ourselves. Are we genuine or are we being artificial? That's the lesson of this. Thank you for listening to the Way Radio podcast. You can find us on the web at thewayradio.net. And if you'd like to email me, please do so at chad at the way, the letter R, 122.org. Until next time, God bless.